you know, if you're a challenger brand, dependent on your positioning, of course, and what type of brand you are, you should be positively disruptive because I think you should add value rather than just kick off, right? And I think if you can be positively disruptive, I think it helps tell your narrative. So I remember years ago, there was a guy in a focus group who said, um, you know, all the classic stuff about, you know, I don't like advertising and da 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 And he said, I just wish that if brands are going to take one minute out of my day, I'd rather you tell me what you do well and tell me what other people do badly, right? And I think in many ways that stuck. And I think that positive disruption helps um, achieve that, right? I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Hey, everyone. Fascinating conversation today with Tom Rainsford. He is the marketing director of Beaver Town Brewery. If you live in the UK, I'm sure you know Beaver Town. They're one of the leading challenger beer brands here. They were acquired by Heineken a couple of years ago. They now produce 500,000 hectoliters. That is 50 million liters of beer annually. But more interestingly, from a marketing perspective, they have one of the most distinctive brands within their category to the point that they actually have the most stolen pub glass in the UK. And we get into that a little bit. Really interesting conversation here. Tom also spent 10 years and was very early on at GiftGaff, which was a very successful challenger telco brand here in the UK as well. So we talk a lot, as you would imagine, about you know how to build a successful challenger brand, how important finding and also explaining why you are trying to disrupt a category is how you make sure, in his words, that you don't dilute your point of difference as you scale. I love his perspective on really just creativity and marketing, but his point of view that creativity is actually at its lowest point right now. So much of it is actually dumbed down and really lacking depth. And of course, we talk about how he makes sure to push against that and deliver you know, pretty consistently, Beavertown is out there delivering very interesting, disruptive campaigns, some of which we will link to in the show notes. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Tom Rainsford of Beavertown Brewery. Great. So I'm really excited to talk to you today. Uh, as I mentioned, when I reached out to you on LinkedIn a few months ago or whatever it was, um, Beavertown is one of the brands that has been on our list for a while. For those that don't live in the UK, maybe not as familiar, um, and obviously I would have given the introduction about your background and kind of what you do there in the intro, and that's of course what we'll get into in the conversation today, but can you please tell us about a challenger brand that you are particularly passionate about right now? So I think this is an interesting one, and whether or not they're a true challenger brand, I think how you think about the market. So go with me on this one. So I'm going to say Peloton. The reason that I'm going to say Peloton is because I think they are both a tech brand, a sports brand, and a community brand. And I think that's an interesting challenge to the traditional ways of thinking about going to the gym or buying sports equipment or community. Now, whether or not we... Um, always like or always agree with the execution above the line, I think is one thing that we can have a debate about uh, at another time. 
But I think the ability to be able to make the platform and its product, which is super premium, sticky through engaging with uh, the community or instructors that they then wanted to go and follow on Instagram. So you then build a personal relationship or somewhat personal relationship with then extending their reach out into books and interviews and getting them on, you know, Good Morning USA and all those kind of things and creating mini celebrities out of it just keeps that brand super sticky, right? And I think that's a very different way of challenging the sports market than traditional brands have actually looked at doing. So I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's very interesting. I know it has its detractors, right? But I do think it's an interesting way to think about how you marry up tech, brands, and uh, sports and communities. Could you maybe start with just a bit of, tell us the story of Beavertown, like the origin story where it's gotten to today. Give us maybe like the two or three minute overview, and then we'll dig into the chapters that we've set out to guide the rest of the conversation. Yeah, great. So, um, Beavertown Brewery is by its very name, a brewery. Um, and we make beer, um, things like neck oil, gamma ray, laser grush, and lots of other, uh, delicious and wonderful beers. And I guess it comes from, um, the founder of the business, uh, was called Logan Plant. He was in America, um, on tour with his band and he went to this craft beer and sort of barbecue joint at the time we're sort of talking you know 2009 10 something like that and there just wasn't anything like that in the uk at all um and he decided to kind of came back to the uk came on tour started brewing in a rice pan in his kitchen opened um up a restaurant with his wife bridget was called brew and q and started brewing beer and cooking delicious barbecue stuff and um and the beer took off and people just loved it and that's where you know early beaver town beers um were born out of and they sort of thought okay this is really working and sort of pushed harder into the into the beer and the food and that's with where beaver town brewery was um born from and very much like you know some of the other well-known um british craft beer brands and very much a kind of zeitgeist at the time and you know things like neck oil just took off and it very much was an organic growth um started to get distribution in regards to things like pubs and shops and then it just kind of went from there and it built up this you know um amazing wonderful visual brand in the restaurant there was a guy called nick dwyer um working as a waiter he just um graduated from St. Martin and was like, hey, I could draw your labels and Nick still draws all the labels and all the stuff today. So that was that mixture of really great beer brought over from kind of, you know, using some of the kind of flavours and recipes that were born out of the US craft beer market, bringing them to the UK, combining them with Nick's artwork and that's Beavertown Brewery. So is there like a, is there like a formal set of brand guidelines or is it just like when you need something, you go to Nick, I'm envisioning him like sitting at the pub with kind of like a sketch pad, but I would imagine at this point, there's something to make that a little bit more scalable. Um, Nick refuses to do, um, brand guidelines, much to the annoyance of 
quite large swathes of the marketing community internally. Um, it, it's a bit of both. I mean, ultimately, you know, I was brought in to mature the marketing approach and take it from sort of where it got to from an organic perspective into um, into a more mature way to further grow the brand and get to new people that we knew would like the product. And in doing that, we've, you know, taken a slightly more structured approach in the way that we're doing marketing, but it's still very much, um, you know, you've got to keep, you know, you've got to keep the magic, right? And the magic in part, you know, comes from Nick and his brain. So it's super important that he continues to do that, even though we might be in lots of different channels, be that, you know, traditional media or whatever it might be. So you have a lot of experience working in what we would call challenger brands or disruptor brands, new brands that are coming into a market that's heavily dominated by incumbents. And obviously, you know, the reality of that beer world, although of course it's been shaken up a lot over the last 10 years is true. But then also as listeners would have heard in my introduction, you spent about 10 years at GifGaf, which is a challenger telco brand here in the UK. And so in our prep call, you know, I think one of the first things that you really gravitated towards was making sure that there is a point to the disruption that you as a brand and business are trying to drive. And I want to get to that, but I want to take a short detour just to ask you a question about your time at GifGaf. And really, you know, you held a bunch of different roles there over 10 years and 10 years in a challenger brand and a startup and scale up. You know, that's, that's like 30 years in a normal job. Um, but you ended up as director of brand engagement and culture. So I think director of brand, that makes sense. But then Director of engagement, what did that mean for you and culture and how did those things all fit together and why to the question or to the conversation we're about to get onto of the why of disruption, what was the why behind having a role that was titled and structured that way? Yeah. So I, um, to me and, and, and a group of other, you know, super talented, brilliant people launched GiftGap in, in 2009 and GiftGap is an old Gaelic word for mutual giving. So the business model was baked on the concept of having people involved in the brand. And that's where that engagement element came from. We always wanted to have a marketing mix that um, brand advocates and, and people we really, you know, were into what we were doing could be involved in the brand. So therefore, giving it its own sort of focus and team to be able to drive that engagement was really important to the overall manifesto and, and, and brand equity of, of GIFGAT. The culture element came into it in, in kind of two forms. One was, um, you know, it's my sort of strong standing belief that brands that have a um, engaged, um, vibrant, um culture internally will always perform better than those that don't right and we can always think of you know a long list of brands that advertise one sort of world and then if you ever talk to anyone that actually works that business it's a very different reality right and those i just don't think in today's world those two things with you know the likes of you know glassdoor linkedin the reality of people talking about work in a very different way than they than they previously did. You just can't have those two things. So those two things need to go together. There's no better way to have that internal culture than to link it to the brand ultimately, because that brand should be, 
you know, breathed externally through all the channels that we use, you know, in a marketing mix, but also internally with the people that work there. So there's that element in culture. And also there's the element that I think that, you know, um, brands should be additive to culture, right? Advertising and marketing is very good at stealing from culture. But actually, if we can be additive to it, um, and add value back rather than just, you know, broadcast our advertising messages to people, I think it ultimately makes a stronger brand. So again, that's kind of why that, um, why that element of culture was within, within my title. Yeah. It's super interesting. And I know you've been heavily involved and actually for a time did oversee the people team at Beavertown as well. And there's always that joint or that integration connection between marketing and HR people talent when it comes to cultural values, doing those types of exercises. But actually it is really interesting to think about if a brand is really gonna be able to deliver on the purpose, the disruption, what it says it stands for in the industry, then the people need to display that. Certainly if you're in any type of consumer facing business, um, but ultimately the output of both the product and the brand are gonna come from how the people orient themselves and think about themselves and work from each other. So that connection and that um, consistency between the culture and the brand, I think is a really interesting thing to think about and to see reflected in org structures sometimes. So moving on to this idea of finding the point of your disruption. So, you know, we talk about this term challenger brand all the time. And of course, with Rival, what we're trying to understand is what makes a successful challenger brand. And as, you know, someone who's been now at the helm of two, you're certainly a good person to talk to about this. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll just throw that out there and let you kind of unpack it. When you say you need to have a point to your disruption, what do you mean by that? And what do you think a lot of challenger brands are getting wrong on that journey? I think um, it's very easy to be disruptive, right? Um, you can run into a restaurant and tip a table over people dining in there and that is highly disruptive but completely pointless and unconstructive to deliver your point right i think when brands truly identify why they exist and who their enemy is or what or what they're challenging it doesn't always have to be we want to take on x brand it could be an an ideology that you that you want to change if you can truly identify that, then it gives you something that's razor sharp that as you grow as a business and it becomes more complicated and you've got more people that probably don't have that link back into the founder that, that wasn't there, you know, with the sort of scruffy bits of paper on the, on the wall, you've got something that you can continuously keep reminding people of why this business exists, right? Now, ultimately, you want people to come to a business every single day and be able to do their best. The minute that people start to lose clarity over why they're turning up and what they're doing and what they're communicating externally, that it becomes weaker as a, as a brand. So you need to have that point. You need to have that reason, right? So if I think about the example of gift gap, right? It was always David versus Goliath. We're David and everyone else is a Goliath. And in the story, you know, you outwit and outsmart and that's how you win, right? That element of mutuality that, you know, I touched on in regards to what 
give Gaff meat. That was always baked in. So we always had something to come back to. Just being uh, in a position where you go, I think we can do, you know, I don't know, I think we can do this fashion thing better, right? Well, okay, cool. But why? What's the point that you want people to care about? And I think if you can do that and have that, I think it ultimately makes the brand more powerful and more successful. How important do you think the role of a foil or a enemy is in creating a challenger brand? Because, um, you know, obviously that's one prototype and I think a very effective one. And just to over-communicate, it's actually something I'm thinking about for Rival. I think, I hope that we have a pretty clear story of what we stand for in terms of this idea of understanding what makes successful challenger brands. But I actually wonder if we miss out on a little bit of the, uh, I don't know if interest is the right word, a little bit of the buzz, a little bit of the stickiness, a little bit of the appeal, because we're not necessarily against anything. You know, we, t- we talk about kind of being against the traditional way that ad agencies are run and the traditional way that consulting firms are run and kind of, I guess you could say just by the nature of what we stand for and the opposite of that, unsuccessful challenger brands and what they're doing wrong, but we don't really lead with that. So, you know, this is also for my own benefit, but I do think it'll be interesting to people listening. How important is that, you know, and even is, is Beaver, I don't see, I don't necessarily see Beaver Town as like against, you know, not in the sense of like, you know, another challenger beer brand out there being aggressively against something like GifGaf was. So maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit for us. I think there's, I think there's lots of different ways that you can um, bring to life your point of difference. And ultimately, that's kind of what, what the thing is here. I think there's definitely some um, ideologies uh, around you should have a very clear rival and, and go after that rival. But ultimately, when you've beaten them, what, what, what do you do now? Pick, pick, pick another one. Um, my, my viewpoint is you should always, if you, if you, you know, if you're a challenger brand, dependent on your positioning, of course, and what type of brand you are, you should be positively disruptive because I think you should add value rather than just kick off, right? And I think if you can be positively disruptive, I think it helps tell your narrative. So I remember years ago, there was a guy in a focus group who said, um, you know, all the classic stuff about, you know, I don't like advertising and da, 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 da. And he said, I just wish that if brands are going to take one minute out of my day, I'd rather you tell me what you do well and tell me what other people do badly. Right. And I think in many ways that stuck. And I think that positive disruption helps, um, achieve that right because ultimately no one wants someone to just walk in the room start shouting and stomping and telling you know why everyone else is rubbish and you know da, da, da. it's just unconstructive right so you can still be a challenger you can still have a rival or an enemy you can still have uh, an, a, a belief system that goes against the norm but how you then bring that to life as a brand doesn't always have to be angry or aggressive or negative, right? Um, and actually, I think, you know, to the example of the research group, I think if you can be positive about it, actually it can be really beneficial for that brand. One of the things that you said in our prep call that I really liked was there's this challenge that a lot of challenger brands don't succeed at, which is 
keeping that point of difference as they scale. And the way that you framed it up is that a lot of these brands become diluted. And you also said, you know, there's a lot of those brands out there that you or I would be like, yeah, they were good and cool when they were smaller, but not anymore. And of course, there is that challenge of when you start small, it's the whole crossing the chasm theory, right? You can be more relevant to less people because you can be so sharp, because you can be so differentiated. But as you scale, particularly for a mainstream brand like a telco or like a, you know, a, a brewery, you're trying to appeal to a lot of different people in theory. Um, and the other element of this is, of course, you know, with Beaver Town now, now being owned by Heineken, I know we're going to talk about that a little bit later as well. I'm sure there is a lot of pressure to kind of scale and appeal to kind of more of the mainstream beer drinker here in the UK and wherever else you're going to go with the business. So how do you defend against that? How do you make sure that you stay just as sharp, just as differentiated when you do have to scale and appeal to more people? And how do you not become diluted as a challenger brand? I think it's definitely probably the most significant challenge that challenger brands face, right? Um, and I sort of call it like you can, there's a couple of band analogies, but the one that I always use is like, it's, it's a little bit like the Kings of Leon, right? Or certainly the UK, which is everyone loved the first two albums. And then the minute that they were playing B Festival and Sex on Fire, everyone suddenly thought they were complete rubbish, right? And um, it's the difficult second album, really. Now, I think without sort of wanting to sort of go over what we've talked about, but I think if you're really super clear on why you exist and that has not necessarily universal appeal, but your business position has appeal, which can go beyond the hardcore group of people that are going to initially support it then you should be able to scale it and, and grow it the challenge really is around you start to bring in people that either don't understand or don't understand the level that is needed for why you are different right and it can suddenly become quite vanilla Equally, there are formats and approaches that work in media channels, right, better. So when you start to look at, um, you know, uh, effective advertising versus less effective but arguably more on brand or more, you know, true to your values or whatever, you start getting into a really difficult situation because it's like you've got to prove the money's working right and you've got loads you know potentially your budgets are bigger than when when you were a smaller brand or whatever so there's always this sort of balance between you know are you doing the right thing are you spending the money in the right way or the more effective way to do it and you compromise and compromise and compromise and compromise and it's an accumulative factor that all of those compromises start to dilute the brand right and it and it is a balance and, you know and i haven't got things perfectly right at any of the businesses that i've worked for that have you know, that there's had to be to be a compromise. But I think if you're if you have that greater level of appeal built on a true insight or a true point of difference or something that you can hang on to when there's turbulence, right? Then I think that gives you the ability to face that challenge in a much stronger way than if you didn't have those things. 
So you've been at Beavertown now for a little over four years. And I'd just be curious to the extent that you can remember or have thought about it since then. You know, 10 years at GIFGAF, kind of leading one of the leading challenger brands in the UK. What were some of the learnings that you took to a different category, a different product, a different brand to get started on the brand side, on the people side, on any of the approach that you kind of honed in your experience there that have now laid the foundation for what you built at Beavertown? Yeah, I think um, there's probably a few things. I think that, you know, to, to, to the previous point, being very clear on what's your, what's your reason to exist and, and what you're trying to do and why, why are you there, right? I think being clear on what value you want to add to the conversation, to the market, to culture, to advertising. I think having a, um, having a respect for the creative approach and the creative execution, right? I think is really important and and at both, um, businesses have had an in-house creative model right which i think is in those instances doesn't see all brands but it seats those those two and i think having you know ultimately super passionate people that believe in what you're trying to achieve and why are sort of contributing factors to the successes of those brands really um and i think you know we always had a thing at GIFGAF, which was, you know, you, you tried to make the people side of things as important as the numbers, right? And I think that that really helps focus the mind on, you know, you, you get rid of the people, you don't have a business, right? So therefore, they really do need to be focused on in the same way that, you know, the very important numbers are. It is interesting. I mean, I totally agree. At the end of the day, one needs to be slightly more important than the other. And it's not like in every situation, right? You know, the world of business as in life is gray. It's not completely black and white. But at the end of the day, I think you could probably go through every company in the world and put them either in a people-led or a numbers-led bucket. And maybe it changes over the course of their journey. Um, But I think that's interesting. It's like, you know, you either make a decision based on the people and for the people, or you make a decision based on the numbers. And a lot of that, and it kind of circles back to what we were talking about before, a lot of that has a big impact on the brand as well. I was just going to say, I, I think it's interesting, Mark. I, I did this um, I did this big, like, global leadership test thing, right, a few years ago. One of the questions in it was, uh, you have to prioritize these areas into which you are led in a business, right? And it was like finance, people, marketing, sales, and operations, right? But you could only pick four out of five, right? And um, and it's actually very, it's an interesting exercise to do, right? It's an interesting exercise to think, to think about, right? Because often, actually, most businesses can be a finance-led business, right? Ultimately, with sales behind that and then people behind that. So to actually get sales beyond those, number one, or even arguably at times, number two, is actually not as straightforward as it may seem on, on face value. 
So I think it's, 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 it's a really interesting exercise to, to kind of ask yourself, because equally, if you've got production in there and production isn't in the top four, then you're not making anything, right? So, it, yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting one to um, consider. I think that's one of the things once you get to a certain level in your career or a certain stage in business, it's not choosing between what's important it's not, and what's not important. They're all important, and yet something usually still has to give. So there's no, um, you know, there's no easy answer as much as everybody is always looking for one. Um, so I'd love to change gears a little bit. Another quote that I jotted down from our prep call that I really liked is you said, create creativity in marketing or advertising. I can't remember exactly uh, the word you use, but anyway, creativity is at its lowest point. And you said a lot of it is really dumbed down and lacking depth. So I'd love for you to elaborate on that and why you have that point of view. And then of course, what you're doing to make sure that you are not contributing to that and that you're actually, and clearly you are in some of uh, the activations that we've seen in the brand that you built, but how are you making sure that you are delivering creativity that is raising the bar within the industry um, and, and has depth to it? So I'm old enough to like remember things like the Levi campaigns in the 90s, you know. Um, there's one in the UK, which is called, like, the Spaceman ad. Um, Sony bouncing balls, Guinness surfers. To me, great advertising should punch through into what pre-COVID we would call, to call a moment, post-COVID, I don't know what, I don't know what you call them, teen, teen conversations, a bit man, right? Um... It should, it, should, it should punch through, right? And my ultimate aim is to have one of those moments that, that does, right? I don't know if I, if I have. Um, arguably, probably not against some of those, you know, seminal pieces of TV advertising. Now, the media mix is much more complicated than it ever has been. You know, there's not, you know, people just sitting watching endless TV. You know, we're on our phones and social and CRM and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's much more complicated. But I think that there are still people making amazing pieces of, you know, advertising, you know, um, you know, uh, nothing beats a Londoner being, you know, obviously a seminal piece of work, you know, that happened in, in recent years. But I just feel like there's fewer of them and i think it comes down to lots of factors i think it comes down to an economic factor which i think then starts to impact budgets which impacts short-term goal setting um which impacts quick wins which impacts the approach that you might want to take creatively and there's an awful lot of top of mind advertising that happens you know um the jingle or the brand sonic has never been probably so used ever in the history of advertising because we need to keep people thinking about the brands because we're trying to make some short-term wins. Are we building brands for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? I don't know because economically it's very different. People don't stay in jobs for the amount of time that they are to be used to. Um, Stakeholders may change, new competitors may pop up. It's it's much more complicated than it ever has been. But I feel maybe more in my heart than my head 
that we should still try and have a commitment to creating pieces of advertising that are creative and loved by people. And if you look at the graph over, do you, do you love advertising, hate advertising? People more than ever dislike advertising. And I think it's because we're not adding enough value into their lives. We are taking short-term wins for lots of reasons. Now, I don't blame anyone for doing that, right? If I worked on some of those brands, I'd probably do the same thing. But I do feel that we could and should uh, continue to try and do creatively interesting things. And is that... That's the, mo- that's the most politically nice way I can probably put it, right? <laughs> By the way, you could be as mean as you want. Um, don't, no, no need to be PC on our accounts. Um, but I think it is, you know, there's clearly a red thread and actually you summed it up even as I was thinking it and thinking to comment on it in my head, which I think we very much align on, which is it all comes down to value growth of anything, the business, the P and L or the brand comes down to whether or not you're ad able to add value and ideally value that doesn't exist already in the market, differentiated value. And I think when it comes to advertising and this is part of, you know, we haven't jammed on this, but part of my philosophy of how I think modern brands need to actually think more like media companies rather than traditional marketing firms or functions, because that comes down to the value exchange is the focus on adding value to an audience in order to attract and retain attention, or is it focused on extracting value from that audience in order to sell something? And of course, at the end of the day, the role of marketing, every dollar that goes in should be to drive growth of a business. It's a question of whether that is focused on the short-term return or the long-term return. So if you're focused on adding value, it's long-term. If you're focused on extracting value, it's more short-term and every business needs to be a little bit of both. The question is where the balance lies. But I think the most successful brands and businesses are the ones that are able to be more long-term focused than the other. And I think that plays out as much on the product side and building products that are more customer-centric and, and deliver differentiated value as it does on the brand side. And I'd be curious, is there anything you can share? Like, is it just as you know clearly you have a North Star and I'm sure when you're working with your teams or your agencies, you're like, I want this to add value. I'm sure that's part of it. You've already talked a little bit about, and it's clear with what you've produced, that a big part is understanding what's going on in the culture around your audience and the zeitgeist and making sure that you can tap into that. But is this a, you know it when you see it, or is there any kind of framework or is there anything that you do differently specifically that other people could learn from in order to produce, um, you know, truly creative breakthrough work? I think it's, um, I think it's two things. I think one is the personal thing, which is like, I've just spent all of my teenage years watching MTV sitting on a sofa, right? And that mass consumption of endless music videos bore a hole into my brain that sort of tried to make them, do you know what I mean? They were always more interesting than adverts and all the rest of it. So I think, I think a bit of it is knowing what is happening within broad culture, pop culture, et cetera, right? And and that is, to, to your point around media, that is so much the case now where, you know, I've got a friend of mine that works for a brand and his CEO came in with a TikTok video that his daughter was watching and basically was like, I don't understand why this is getting, you know, 2 billion views or whatever, and we're struggling to get 100,000 views on our advert. And it's like, because it's an advert, right? 
So it's never been more important to understand culture and how people are consuming it. So I think there's a personal thing which is just kind of naturally lean that way. I think the second thing is that if if you have to understand it, you have to be insight-led and you have to understand where those insights are coming from, both in a brand perspective, but also on a, on a, on a product perspective. And each generation now seems to be quite a bit different than, than the previous one. So if you do want to create things that are going to have some longevity, you truly need to understand people. And that's way beyond just a demographic, geographical understanding. It's a head and heart thing, right? Great brands play to both head and heart, rational and emotional, you know? So you do need to understand why someone loves the things that they love and how your brand either aligns or doesn't align to those things because you want to get into the heart, right? So, um, so I think it's those, I, I think it's those two things that really, that really helped me and, and hopefully the businesses that I've, that I've worked for. It's definitely that understanding a culture built on insight. So one of those breakthrough things that you and the brand have created is the visual ID, but the way that that manifests or comes to life for most consumers, people that go to a pub is, is in, of course, the tap and the can, but the pint glass. And, uh, you, you know, you are, Beavertown is part of the cultural zeitgeist in the UK, um, with these pint glasses, which I know this isn't, you know, isn't, isn't validated or anything, but apparently you have the most stolen pint glass in the UK. So I'm guessing this wasn't a, I'm going to write a brief, how do we come up with the most stolen pint glass in the UK? But um, how did how did that come to life? How do you think about it now? Uh, I just thought it was an interesting anecdote. It, so in the, in, in the world of beer, you know, stuff that happens in your distribution points, be that, you know, pubs or shops or whatever, I'm, I'm, you know, as important as, as your media, right? Because the frequency that people are going to see it is at the point of purchase. You really want to, you know, make an, make an impact there. The, it's not, um, we're not the first beer brand, you know, to do interesting pie glasses. But there was, and it, it predates me, absolutely no strategy that went into it. It was how do we create, and um, as a prop, um, how do we create a cool looking pine plot, right? And Nick went, yeah, we, you know, being the town, we're all about skulls. We put, you know, colourful skulls um, across it and the logo and, and that's it. And naturally people just went, wow, this is, this is a wicked glass. I'm going to stick this in my bag and, you know, and, and take it home. Um, why I love that is because I can't pay to get into people's cupboards to remind them every morning when they're going to get a glass of water about the brand, right? Um, and it would be weird if, if I was sitting in people's cupboards. Right? So to do that um, and have that level of frequency is, um, is you know, incredible. Equally, allowing if you like or being open to the fact that people are being a bit cheeky and they feel that you know almost got away with one or got something free right is a lovely position to play into the emotional connection that people have with that with that brand right um and you know we 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 sort of 
the similar things that have extended on from the brand, which is, yes, we frequently have um, tweets or X's and we frequently have TikTok videos about people stealing pint glasses, right? We also have loads and loads of people popping up with beaver town tattoos, right? Now, not everyone is going to get a beaver town tattoo. I don't want everyone to get a beaver town tattoo. But for those people that feel that way inclined, that's incredible, right? They are willing to have a permanent element on their bodies that is a visual representation of the brand. And we had a pop-up shot recently with a tattoo artist who was booked out solidly giving people Beaver Town tattoos, right? Now, if I think back to my, you know, um, youthful days of sitting around, you know, watching MTV, band logos were always such an incredible, powerful thing, you know, there's, there's rock and metal bands from the 80s that are still on t-shirts sold in mainstream shops now because the iconography is so strong. Our iconography is strong like a brand's like a, like a band's iconography, right? And that's really punchy. So so the pint glasses play to that and clearly, you know, those people that want to get tattoos, it clearly plays to that as well. So it's just a it's a wonderful position for us to to be in. And, you know, we, we were in a meeting, you know, recently and we went to the pub afterwards and we were standing by the bar and um, uh, this person, she just picked up a bag. She didn't know we were from Beavertown, obviously. She just picked up a bag and was just putting them off the bar in a bag, you know, and we were like, yeah, cool, go for it. Oh, man, that's amazing. My sister has one, by the way, so... Um... All right. I think the last thing I've got a note here that says, ask about the Halloween campaign. So I'm guessing that Viren is planning on releasing this at some point in October, but what can you tell us about the upcoming Halloween campaign? So we have um, our new Halloween campaigns going live at the start of October. Um, we uh, started sort of our focus on Halloween a couple of years ago and sort of taken it, you know, um, if you like building on that um, sort of foundations, you know, it's a big party weekend. It's a big staying in and scaring yourself, watching horror movies on Netflix weekend. Look at the brand's visual identity. It, you know, it it it, it massively plays into it. So we're going to have some um, great content going live um, across, you know, facial channels and maybe cinema. We're um, just debating at the moment can have a graphic novel, a physical graphic novel that you can you can get and, and read built in our world, but with a scary Halloween-y um, based story. Um, and then we'll be supporting it through an event, a big event that's going to happen in Shoreditch on the um, Halloween weekend. So whether or not you're staying at home, you can scare yourself watching Netflix and our content, or if you're going out, you can go out to our party in Shoreditch and you know, get involved and have a great time. So um, it's a real, um, it's super fun. It's um, it's a really wonderful way to be able to build the brand and, and bring it to life for Halloween. So yeah, so it's all going live at the start of October. It's the one like, you always know when you're ramping up for a campaign when it's like the majority of your meetings are about it. And that is definitely what's happening at the moment. So yeah, so exciting stuff for Halloween coming up. It's funny, I just were recording this September 11th. I just came back from six weeks in the U.S. The Halloween promotions started early August. It's crazy over there. So I think there's still room for that market to grow here. Um, 
So a quick lightning round. So quick fire answers. I got a set of questions here. I know that by design, you didn't see them until just a couple hours ago. So no time to prep. Can you tell us about the first job you ever had? Uh, I had a paper round when I was about 11 or 12, where I lived and went around on a Friday afternoon, delivering free papers to people that didn't want them and probably didn't read it. What's the best piece of career advice you've ever received? To, I think, um, start by starting. I think we can over-strategize and procrastinate too much. And sometimes it's not what you're asking for, it's when you ask for it, right? So if you want a difficult conversation about, I don't know, development or pay or those things, don't do it at four o'clock on a Friday. You're all unlikely to get the response that you want. What's the best or worst brand campaign you've seen recently? Um, the best is our, um, is our summer campaign that we just did. The worst is there's a big bank in the UK whose above the line is quite literally the same as a um, uh, cold mailman music video. It's, it's identically shot. And I doubt, I doubt the bank no, right. But they signed it off. It, it, it's so similar from a camera movement and action perspective. It's it's it, it's just plagiarism straight down the line. So you think the agency just did it and pushed it past them? Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's happened before. That's for sure. What is your pet peeve about the marketing industry? Um, I think it's very easy for people to knock each other's campaigns. Um, I think whether or not you like it or agree with it all of them say blood sweat and tears and i don't think anyone anywhere is turning up to work to do a bad job i think that it's too easy to be like yeah i think that's rubbish and i would have done it by then i just think you know show a bit of love in the world right what's one marketing tool that you can't live without a team right that is the, the the best tool I have to my uh, to access is my team. You know, whatever platform, whatever thing you want to do, whatever it doesn't it doesn't matter, right? What matters is that you got people that care about what you want to do, and hopefully believe in what you're saying, and will get up in the morning and turn up and put in skin in the game. You know, what's one thing? people should do differently after listening to this episode challenge whether or not they have total clarity on what their business and brand is trying to stand for and achieve love that and lastly do you have a beaver town tattoo i do not have a beaver town or any tattoos um i still at 42 live in fear of my mum so I, I think she would disown me. I've thought about it many times. I've even, I've even decided what they should be. And, um, you know, I, I, I really wanted one when I was like 15 and, um, and my mum made sure that that didn't happen. So I still live in fear. I think that's fair. I think if you have no tattoos and you don't have one, that's acceptable. If you had tattoos and you didn't have one, I'd have some questions. Tom. It's been a really fascinating and informative conversation. I really appreciate you making the time. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thank you. Scratch is a production of Rival. 
We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.